0: The Get This Podcast is brought to you by my WordPress web development agency brand, K2Creative. You can visit getthispodcast.com slash K and the numeral 2. That's getthispodcast.com slash K2 and click book a discussion for a free 30-minute discussion on anything related to WordPress, I'll be happy to help. Whether you need a new website or you have an existing site, you're not happy with the speed, you're not happy with the security, you need plugins updated, you're having issues, your developer ran off to Costa Rica, you don't know where to find him or her, we can help. My team builds websites that drive millions of page views a year. We can help with membership, e-commerce. If it's in WordPress, we can make it happen. Visit getthispodcast.com slash K2 and click the book a discussion link, and I'll be happy to help with whatever you need in WordPress. Hey everybody, this is Kevin Couchman with the podcast, Get This, the show about things people love. I'm coming to you from upstate Manhattan, Washington Heights, here on, in the uh, foul year of our Lord, 2019, October 3rd. And I'm joined by my new pal here, Tom Block. Tom, how you
1: doing? I'm great, Kevin. Thanks for having me today.
0: Oh yeah, thanks for being had. Uh, <laughs> so what are we going to talk about here today, Tom? I know you have a show coming up here in New York City. Maybe we'll get that out of the way. What's the thing you love
1: Uh, start with the thing i love huh yeah well i'm i'm these days i'm loving writing i'm doing all kinds of different writing and uh it's extremely challenging and um trying to carve out some unique space some unique voice uh it's very exciting i'm enjoying it a lot
0: yeah fantastic uh you're the second writer in a row that i've had on this show which i think is natural given that i also do some writing myself uh Tell me about this project and let's just, you know, spit out some dates right away here at the, at the top of the show because I know you have something coming on here in New York City pretty soon.
1: I do. My um, play Duck is being um, presented. What? Every time you say it, I feel like duck. I should like Norman. No, okay. Duck Like Quack.
0: Oh, oh, Duck Like Quack. Okay, go quack. on. I interrupted.
1: Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, it's, a, it's a Duck Quack, not a Duck Incoming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Um, it's running from uh, October 18 to November 3rd at IRT Theater down on Christopher Street. Um as part of the 3B Residency Program. Uh, the play basically is at the intersection of patriotism, mysticism, and the CIA. And um, all the work I do really uh operates at this created intersection between mysticism, classical mysticism, the search for oneness with uh the universe, and um contemporary society. Uh so this particular play. Looks at a CIA statistician, who, while he's wonderful with numbers, wasn't aware that there's a specific metric that he would create probability tables of what percentage odds someone was a terrorist. Uh-huh. And in this, and uh, the the play starts when he he rounds up. It was he had got the fifty nine percent probability, and it was like it seemed kind of messy, so he rounded up to sixty percent, and that's the threshold. So his rounding up causes somebody to die. And um, through the course of the play, we learned that this person that has reached 59 or 60% um, may or may not be a terrorist. I mean, it's certainly it's presented within the play as if this person is a, a caring father and running an orphanage in Damascus. Uh, it also involves his brother who was in the CIA and who will be the operative on this project to go over and kill the guy. The
0: Stats brother. Yeah, the, yeah brother, the, statistician.
1: The, stati- the statistician. So the brother drops out, basically leaves the CIA, um, drops out of society because he can't go through with this.
0: Are we uh, approaching a point where we would spoil the play or are we still in setup?
1: Uh, I think we're still in setup. Then let me just finish okay. yeah, with of this. So uh, the premise of the play is that the, the, uh, the statistician... It's kind of like, how did I end up here? I just know numbers. I don't, can't even really relate to people. How did I end up in a situation where my work is leading to people who may or may not be innocent dying? Yeah. And his brother is now homeless, leads him on a virtual like journey through his own past to ah. figure out how he ended up where he is in the present. So the play goes from the present, mm. um, where Duck is only quacking, into the past where we see his this whole kind of life journey. Yeah. And then back to the present again, where we uh, finish the play.
0: Fascinating. Thanks
1: for stopping me, because I don't want to kill my own. Yeah, no, it's (laughs) great.
0: And so repeat again uh, where it's going to be happening, and where can people find you in the play online?
1: Well, they can find me at uh, tomblock.com or um, at IRT Theater's website. It's at the uh, IRT Theater on uh, 154 Christopher Street. Mm -hmm. um, And the play runs from October 18 to November 3rd. It's great, uh, thirteen shows.
0: Yeah, I wanted to get that uh, out of the way right up top for people great. who only listen to the beginning of the show. <laughs> and if you do that, why you, you got another fifty five minutes here of uh, all the good stuff? Yeah, is all the good stuff. Right, we're going to talk about his childhood. We're going to talk about his you know his family. No, no,
1: wow, all right no. I didn't know that. I wasn't in the contract. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this isn't Marin. You should have read what you signed off on exactly. uh, in the booking form there. Yeah, always read the terms of service. You know, it's interesting. You were talking about the structure of that play and the thought that occurred to me is wouldn't it be nice if we could do that writ large as a nation and really analyze the ascendant dominance of the three-letter agencies and their role in uh, contemporary governance and i actually think that that's in uh in play now in the zeitgeist, uh, when people talk about the so-called deep state, this is what they mean, and you do get this impression that there's kind of a kind of a Kafkaesque quality to American life now that 20 years ago we may not have been so aware of.
1: That that may be the case. I don't think the American political sphere has changed. I mean, in the 1950s, we had the Dulles brothers going around murdering uh, elected presidents of other countries, you know, Mossadegh and Iran and Allende. Um, so I don't know that our operations have changed, but maybe we are beginning to be a little less uh, trustworthy. Unfortunately, this metastasizes and you can end up with someone like uh, Trump saying that anybody that's against him is part of a deep state, whereas sure. maybe people on the left feel like, well, gee, the CIA should be watched and there should be transparency and we need to know what's going on and we don't want them acting in our name. Um, it's like everything with the with the internet, kind of everything kind of becomes a kaleidoscope. So you can take whatever pieces, whatever colors you want, and that will color your view of the news, whatever's going on. It's um, there's no Walter Cronkite anymore saying that's the way it is. You know, right. We don't have that. Anymore. and
0: more and more importantly, or as important as that's the way it is, and this is how we react to it tonally. And so the tone has become like pro wrestling because it's whatever grabs attention and moves the needle in terms of numbers and you know attention.
1: Yeah, I mean our our, our public square has certainly devolved into a, um, a much more of a scrum it appears though I wasn't there in the 60s so I don't know. It may well, I often think some of these things just represent a lack of my own perspective when I feel like this is the worst of times or sure. it's never been like this. Right. I mean if you read about American history there were Congressman getting shot on the floor of the House of Representatives. You know, Aaron Burr killed uh, Alexander Hamilton in a duel or whatever. So, yeah, I
0: heard there was a play about that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure we're in the worst of times. Sure.
0: I mean, in the yellow journalism and
1: yeah, all I that. Yeah, well, right. the Japanese internment. But I, I will say that um, I feel like this has been a tremendous uh, stress test on our structures of of our democracy and my sense is that we will get through it with the democratic structures that we have flawed as they may be more or less in place so i mean that's kind of how this particular episode and we're talking about the donald trump presidency uh for me is unfolding um a stress test and i think we'll pass the test ultimately
0: this is great i need this optimism here That's fantastic. Hopefully we will. It's a curious time. How long have you been working on the play?
1: Oh, the play goes back to 2013. It's had quite a bit of development. Um, It grew out of a series of plays I wrote for something called 30 Plays in 30 Days, a project where all August you're supposed to write a short play every day. Oh, cool. And I took four of those pieces and put it into this play, and then I worked with a series of directors and had a series of readings, both here and in Washington, D.C., um, to finally come up with this very honed, I think, a uh, tight script.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. You're in rehearsals right now.
1: They are. <laughs> well, right I've, now you're on a I've, podcast. I've been asked not to return to rehearsals. I'm the writer. That's how it works. <laughs> Stay Kevin. out of the room. Exactly. Stay you... out...
0: Well, it depends on the director, though, doesn't it?
1: I've never met a director that wants uh, me there as the writer. Really? Throughout the, the process. Mm, I think they yeah. I, they want to bake the cake. They want to, you know, get out of the kitchen. Right. You'll, you'll, I'll bring out the dish when it's done.
0: I no mean, new lines.
1: Well, I mean... The first, I'm there for the first four or five rehearsals, and there was some script issues, and there were some questions about general motivation, and and then when you get into blocking, and you get into you know learning lines, and uh, specific interpretations, then I think that's the director's art. I mean, and I respect that. Yeah, and you want to step out of the way and let them do their thing. Yeah, and I think um, as a writer, you must know that you can have very bad experiences with directors, so you have to find one that you you trust that can understand your work, especially if you're working non-traditionally. My work is... uh, experimental, non-traditional, absurdist. Um, So I am fortunate that right now I have just such a director, in Katrine Hilb and uh, I am completely 100% um, confident that she will find the way into this play to make the play better than I wrote it. I mean, that's ultimately the goal as a writer, that a director would make your play more than you thought it was. For
0: sure. Everybody involved, every collaborator brings something in it brings it to life. What an exciting time. It's been a while since I've had a production, and I recall the excitement and uh, nerves and all the rest of it. Hopefully, it won't be too much longer until my next one. <laughs> Isn't that always the thing as a playwright?
1: I mean, I think uh, in New York, the chasm between getting a really solid reading and then getting yeah. a full production is the Grand Canyon and your evil Knievel on a motorcycle. <laughs> Maybe you'll make it. You probably are going to hit the canyon wall. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I it's hit just, that
0: canyon wall a few times. It's
1: such a vast difference i mean getting readings it can be done you yeah know. true
0: pretty um, low risk
1: yeah but then when you start c- talking even an off off broadway production you're talking about real money and so sure you know and and there's no chance at this level of it coming back unless you hit the lottery and you know sure you're picked up by signature theater which happens once a year maybe yeah it's in new york yeah
0: yeah there's a pretty vital theater scene uh in other cities as well there are vital scenes in other other cities and new york is a it is always going to be something like a Mecca for theater professionals. So, but it is a, it is a bit of a conundrum where, where do those productions emerge? How do, how do they occur and all the rest of it? How long have you been a playwright, Tom?
1: I had my first play produced on 2012. So it's oh. been about seven years.
0: All right. And yeah, I came to it quite late. What inspired you to write your first play?
1: That's a good question. I kind of worked on it for several years, assuming nothing. I mean, I'm a writer. So I was like, well, I'll try this play thing. Um, and then I met a woman who was a director, and she did a few readings of it. And uh, I got a space because I had an art show. I'm a visual artist as well. And the gallery said, well, you know, if you want to do your play here, we can set it up like a theater. So I told her that. And she was like, you know, I love this play. Let's do it. So we um, we did it. Uh, got a very interesting review from a theater blog down in the D.C. area. And then the play got accepted to theater for the new city. And I had a full run there. All right. Um and then I was like, I'm hooked. I loved it. No, just the passion and the intensity. Uh, I was like, if people can care this much about my work, this is the world I want to be in. Yeah. Because as a visual artist, you're usually met with indifference. <laughs> I can assure you.
0: Okay. All right. Well, so I have so many questions now about this transom that you crossed from the visual arts into uh, theater arts and performance and writing for performance. So let's let's get into that. Sure. Uh, maybe the best way to start is to talk about your background in, in the visual arts. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I was a professional exhibiting painter for 25 years. Um, you know, 200 exhibits and public art and kind of the whole nine yards. And uh, I found it very frustrating because we do not live in a culture that particularly respects visual art. And I don't think it's new. There's a wonderful quote by a 1950s painter named Delmar Bischoff. And he was actually very successful in the end. But he got a Guggenheim and went to Europe. And it was the first time he'd been to Europe as a painter. And he said, you know, my whole life, I've just been a a lazy bastard. And all of a sudden, I'm an artist. (laughs)
0: when you you step foot in europe exactly yeah Yeah. i have that feeling sometimes when i go i spend a lot of time in london as much time as i can practically and it is it's a different
1: vibe there's more respect i think you say
0: i'm a playwright they don't look at you like you're some sort of uh weight on society
1: really what do you do seriously right what do you actually do (laughs) exactly right or or why i mean that's what i used to get as a visual artist why (laughs) why I can't help myself.
0: Obviously, I'm some sort of mental degenerate. It's like I haven't,
1: I, I haven't read about you in the New York Times, so why are you bothering? Of, of you course, know? you haven't had oh. the
0: imprimatur from the exactly. yeah, right. The makers of taste,
1: bless them. Well, you know, once you, if you're accepted, look at Mick Jagger when he was accepted. He said, "I actually don't see any difference between us and them anymore." It was like, well, okay, uh,
0: between who and who?
1: You know, when Mick Jagger was like, you know, it was like the, him, the react, the the revolutionary, and them. You know, normative society, uh, yeah. and then he got accepted in, and sure. he's like, "I don't see much of a difference anymore. These are good people." <laughs> yeah, of course, of course they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you
0: know, I don't mean to sound bitter either. I mean, we need you know, uh, these Kevin, institutions. Let's, and... No,
1: let's go bitter. Uh, Come on. Man.
0: I mean, this is the you know, American artists are always going to have that that gripe because we aren't quite embraced culturally the same way. You know, in Norway, for example, it's considered. I don't know if it's changed, but it's it's considered. Quite prestigious to be a high school teacher. It's a status position wow. to teach high school. That's great. You know, and, and that's a, and in America, it's perceived as, well, and I mean, no disrespect to anyone, but I mean, let's be realistic about the way we, we treat the arts and we treat education and all the rest. You're either building an app and cashing in or uh, showing flesh on an app or do, do you know? Hey, we live in this, this culture of spectacle somehow and, um,
1: Well, Mm -hmm. and in in the arts, people will respect success, Yes, but they won't respect the art. So you can have the exact same work of art, and if they all of a sudden have read about it somewhere, they'll have a deep respect for you. But if they've never read about it, they don't have the... We don't live in a culture where people seem to have the imagination or appreciation to just look at the art right. for itself. I think,
0: I think so much of it has to do with our, our capitalist society and how stressed everyone is over, over income and, and finances. And the, this, My theory uh, has long been, and I've, I've gone back and forth around this and this podcast isn't about me, but the, the, my theory has long been that the single best thing that could happen to the arts in the United States is single payer. Because that would uh, relieve so much of the stress and the need to to marry money or or find a way to make the money or hold down one of these soul deadening, crushing jobs where the subtext is constantly, "What are you going to do if you quit? Right. What are you going to do if we get fired, um, or if you get fired?" And uh, that is one that's the, perhaps the most psychologically oppressive thing that Americans have to deal with that artists in other countries. You know, why do the Aussies travel so much? Well, they have the leisure to do it. Right. They know they can always sort of go home. I mean, if they break their arm or, God forbid, they get a cancer diagnosis, uh, they know they can go back home and there will be that care. And Americans, we live on this constant knife's edge. Uh, and so then what ends up happening is art, art becomes the domain of the halves. And I think we know
1: that. Well, I mean, the amount of art... Being created right now might be, in the United States, might be the most. This, True enough. I mean, just in terms yeah. of gross, pound, you know, power. Sure. I mean, there is a tremendous yearning among people, yeah, creators, to create. And I, unfortunately, I've, I've had this experience. I had a, a friend who was the vice president in, with Americans for the Arts, which is a huge advocacy organization for the arts. And they got a $200 million bequest from Eli Lilly when, she, when that person died. And we were out to lunch, and I said, uh, "Randy, why don't you support artists with that money? They only support organizations." Go direct. Yeah, and he said, "Well, artists are going to create no matter what. They don't need the money. It's oh, the organizations that geez. need the support." Well, that was the end of our friendship. But, <laughs> I, well, they and they but love it's perverse. It's and It's sick. Also, well, I guess it's true. I mean, you know, um, right? You're writing. I'm writing. True. I mean.
0: That is a good point. Yeah, it, we are it's, kind it's, of mentally. It's perverse there is a mental, and mean
1: mm-hmm. and small and not respectful. But it is also true.
0: Well, but you know what? These people love more than anything else galas. You can't if you support individual artists, right? You, you don't have to, get, to get to throw these wonderful galas. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, and so wow, this is this is quite fun. I'm enjoying myself. Uh, I want to I want to hear a little more about your background in the visual arts, and then try to. Uh, tie the knot to the theater. So how did you get started as a visual artist? And tell me some of that work.
1: Also interesting. So I um, finally got through college uh, at the age of 24. And I was writing, actually. I was writing uh, uh, journalism. I was doing um, features journalism. And
0: where was this? And where are you from originally?
1: So I'm from Washington, D.C. area. Okay. And I was doing uh, freelance features journalism and having some success. I mean, I was in major American newspapers, the Dallas Morning News, Atlanta Journal, Constitution, Denver Post. Um, and I hated it. So I gave uh, I gave that up and I was waiting tables in Boston and it turned out there was an art school, uh the School of the Museum of Fine Arts right where I lived in the Fens just by happenstance. So I started taking some photography courses and kind of one thing led to another and at the age of 26 I declared myself uh an artist and I just dove in and for the next 25 years I drew and I painted and I exhibited and um, I had had no visual art background. Wow. Um, And throughout that time, I was also writing, but not, it was always secondary to the visual art. But like I said, the visual art world, it was just, there's no meritocracy. It's all market and it's all, how can you sell yourself on Instagram or whatever? Back in the day, it wasn't Instagram, but it felt so spiritually empty to me that Hmm. I finally just could not participate with it but luckily i was i've now devoted myself to writing and i'm i had some uh, several books published and um i'm working on a lot of short stories and i have a lot of plays around so I'm, I'm kind of taking that energy but the visual art most definitely affected um my my theater aesthetic because i had a practice of blind contour drawing uh where you only look at what you're drawing and for fi- drawing takes 15 or 20 seconds with a pen on paper And it taught me so much about relationships, and it taught me about unusual manners of seeing, and it taught me about looking at the same thing and doing 100 drawings, and each one would be unique. Um, And then when when I started writing plays, it really affected my structure. So I do not have a normative, you know, cat goes up tree, throw stones at cat. Get cat comes down tree to wild applause, right? I mean, that's that poor cat. I mean, you know, it better have nine lives because I've heard
0: that story more than nine times. Exactly. Yeah. Wow.
1: So, I mean, my my plays are you know, cat smokes a cigar, takes a tab of acid, you know, (laughs) has a trip into the back of his his uh, VW van or whatever. Uh So, uh but but it was really I think does stem from my expanding the idea of connections through. I mean, I did probably ten thousand of those drawings for over twenty five years. I just have. 150 sketchbooks filled with these kind of and I would do it everywhere. I mean every time I was around and out I would draw and I would draw your radiator I would wow. draw your face I would draw you know those um, your sheets there. I mean I would I, just everything and, and also it gave me a as at the time I was reading a lot of mysticism and it gave me a sense of equality for everything. Because yeah. everything's connected, and everything was equally beautiful. Right. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to draw a flower, because that flower was no more interesting in this blind contour world uh, than a radiator. Wow. You know, it's it's hmm. so it really, um, it kind of, it deepened and expanded these ideas, which now I think really influence uh, my theater writing.
0: That is a very good answer. Now. Talking about that, uh, you know, crossing over into into theater. Do you do uh, clever or creative things with your writing process beyond simply using words? Are you? Do you ever draw your your concept for a set? Do they intersect more immediately?
1: Uh, um, I have practices. done. Yeah, I mean, I've yeah. done. I usually write my paintings into the set. Okay. And they have absolutely been used on set. I had them in my first play on casters, and they were wheeled around. They ah. were like six feet tall paintings, and they became. Uh, you know, visual and wall elements that Hmm. were moved around the stage. So I do like to do that. Um, And I do, a lot of my work is multimedia. But again, when you start saying, I'm going to do a multimedia piece and you read through my stage directions and it's got projections and it's got video and it's got dancers, you know, at the level I'm producing, it's hard to bring all that stuff off. But a lot of that is written into my scripts and then a director has to look at resources, obviously in theater. Um, What was your first play about? Uh, white noise, it was called white noise was about an African American spiritually based painter, yeah who traveled to Detroit as sort of with almost a prophet aura. like he developed this new concept of visual art that was bringing you know mysticism and society together. And he arrives in Detroit for this art show and he's basically treated like a, a very um, race, racistly. He's he's doing it in a uh, a church um, gallery. And the church is basically like three or four older, you know, like Lutherans or something. I don't know if I said quite which they were. But Uh Uh they're like, they want to do good and they want to do right. But they just can't get beyond that there's a large black man in their lives right
0: now. So they become patronizing and Well, yeah. And it's it's, it's
1: overtly racist. And he's having this psychic meltdown. And in the course of the play... um, a very sexualized version of Simone Veil shows up. I don't know if you know Simone Veil. I know the name. A 20th century prophet uh, who was just incredibly ascetic and uh, mystical, and she died of tuberculosis in in World War during World War II. Um, but this 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 mystic shows up. Completely sexualized. And he's like, what the hell are you doing here? Only he can see her. Oh, why are you dressed like that? You know, Simone wouldn't dress like that. And he's got this porn addiction. So he's got this public <laughs> oh, wow. face of mysticism. Jeez. But his personal internal life is like melting down. Huh, and yet all he gets from from this mirror is you're a large black man. So um, I actually wrote it because I was working with a great actor, great African-American actor, um, Michael Mack. And I wanted to write a play that uh, really would – Use his talents. He's a, a, a very, uh, he's a wonderful actor. So, um, yeah, so it's dealing with a lot of different currents and cross currents. And and then uh, the Simone Veil character would like dance on the stage and, you know, basically her underwear. And he'd be like, what the hell are you doing here? And she slaps him at one point. She's like, why are you ignoring me? He's like, because you don't exist. You know, she's like, look at me. How can you say I don't exist?
0: Goodness. You keep talking about mysticism. And that's an obviously broad topic. Let's talk a little bit about that. How long have you had an interest in in it? And can you define a little, little more what you, what you mean by it yeah, for you?
1: Um, I became interested uh, back in the uh, 1990s when I was painting. And I really wanted my art to have a deeper meaning. And I was reading a lot of um, Islamic mysticism, Sufism, and Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, and Christian mysticism, Simone Weil or uh, Meister Eckhart. Um, and so I started basically using those ideas to underpin my playwriting. Now, mysticism actually, to me, is, is pretty basic. It is one person's search to have a direct connection with, obviously, if you're mystic, you think God, but I, I say the universe, but to, to dissolve the boundaries between your personal ego and the universal ego. That's the mystical goal. Um, I, I took a different tack because in the 13th century – In Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, an idea of what's called legislative prophecy emerged, where prophets weren't just supposed to go off on their own and look for personal realization, which historically is what they did. Yeah. But they were supposed to channel this prophetic impetus into social action and into the social world. And I'll give you one example of what I mean. Um, In the 13th century, Jews and Muslims uh, actually were getting along pretty well in Spain, uh, and Moses Maimonides, a Jewish thinker, was a people would come to him. Jews would come to him and say, and even Muslims. He was very well respected by Muslims. We'd come to him and, and ask for, uh, you know, a, um, ask for a, a reading on a particular passage or what was going on. So Jews and Muslims were getting together and having drinking parties, which is illegal in both religions. <laughs> so he said, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop a little honey into the wine." And for the Jews, the honey means that that wine is no longer sacramental. And for the Muslims, it means that that wine is now a soft drink. So then you can get together and have these parties. This is a religious ruling that is, you know, you can actually find. <laughs> so that is a, to me, that's a perfect example of legislative prophecy because he's like, it's much more important to have Jews and Muslims getting together and ah, sharing time. getting than a little than loose. We're, right. Getting really? loose and, and making peace instead of no, the Bible says this, and no, the Quran says that. So Um, that's one example of medieval legislative prophecy. So then I just basically wanted to channel those ideas and make my art about how can mysticism and mystical ideas influence society today. And again, all of my work, the painting, the, the playwriting, the fiction and nonfiction work, it all kind of looks at this intersection of these highest ideals and what's really going on. And as we can see, what's really going on is usually not achieving those highest ideals.
0: Yeah, not remotely.
1: Not remotely.
0: <laughs> and I think there's, a, of course, a long tradition of the arts and magic and mysticism, okay. Kabbalah, yes. you mentioned, uh, Christian tradition, all of it, uh, inspired by these mystical reveries. Uh, it seems almost, is it gauche to, to mention? Like, there is a counter movement toward that, which is kind of nihilistic and chilly, Uh in the arts, yeah, it's isn't it's called there? pop art, <laughs> in
1: my well, opinion. The,
0: yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing.
1: Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah, of course. But I, I my, for me, I find that empty, and I, I, I can be very uh, successful in the market. Ah. You go to any Whitney Biennial, and you'll see things that you think, or I think, are completely devoid of any meaning, but there they are in a museum, and they're getting top sure. dollar in Chelsea. Sure, sure. Um, but I think as an artist, you ultimately have to make your decision about... What do you stand for? If you stand for the market, that's your decision. But if you're like, I want to stand for these ideals, and I have a pretty clear idea of the ideals I'm standing for in a very specific, if you come to the play, you'll see how this is presented in in the theater, this intersection of mysticism and the real world. Because Duck, the main character, goes through this. He's at that intersection. He's like, the real world, I followed orders, I did my numbers perfectly, and it's turned me into a murderer. What does that mean for my heart and soul? Sure,
0: Yeah. That's a classic question, um,
1: and those around him are like, "You're a total success. What's the matter with you? Right? You, know, you made it. You're getting a right. You're getting pushed up the ladder. You're getting a raise. You know."
0: I think this holds up. Uh, maybe it's silly to mention uh, the that that moment in Goodwill Hunting where he he gets recruited by he's being recruited by the three letter agencies, and he comes back with that quite intense speech about how he may crunch some numbers that end up blowing up a village in somewhere. I, 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 that's what it's made me think of. Yeah,
1: well, it sounds like yeah. a very similar... You know. Yeah, right. I mean, right. what responsibility does one bear? Can you just say I'm a cog in the wheel or I was just following orders? I don't know. I mean, it happens today down on the southern border. You have these uh, mm. these ice guys that are down there and border patrol that are doing these horrible things. What To what level? I mean, I don't... This you is know. something
0: that I've often thought about lately. I've been thinking about this, yeah, with some frequency around modern democracy, contemporary neoliberalism, and how it's so good at – it's almost like it's designed to shift blame, to neutralize blame, to neutralize liability, and just spread it out through the society so that we're all complicit, so that nobody really dares to raise a stink because we've all been kind of made involved somehow in this Complicit. These, complicit. Uh, it's not an original idea. It's just something that I'm thinking about a lot lately. When I was in when I was in England in 2007 and 2008, um, I spent a year there. Their theater was extremely concerned with that and aware of it in a way that I've yet to really see American theater tackle. This was in London. Uh, again, not the most original idea, but important. What's the individual's role in this in this machinery?
1: Well, oh God, I just read a, a quote and basically it was by um, Murray Rothbard <laughs> Murray Rothbard an economist and he said basically the only way to 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 counteract that is to just remove yourself mm. like you can't fight as an individual and win all you can do is remove yourself and i'm not i'm not even sure what that means does it mean you don't pay taxes and you go to jail well Thoreau did that uh
0: Thoreau right. did that sure, i mean
1: sure. I, I think you have to build make your own decision on what that means but yeah. i mean you know this this quote was basically like you know the tyranny of of government, and in our Western society, the only way you can fight it is to remove yourself. And in a sense, I think artists, we feel we're doing that on to, some level,
0: or creating something that maybe stands as as a personal antidote to the catastrophe,
1: maybe. the catast- ongoing catastrophe of uh, right of civilization. Yeah, right, right,
0: right. And maybe it's hubris to think that we can even do it, but I. I don't know what alternative there is exactly, right? right well, sort of a- trying to make things rather than than bring things down. Yeah. It it is crazy that if you refuse to give the government back the paper that they print, which you've earned, they will put you in a cage.
1: That's that's one way to. It is so <laughs> crazy.
0: <laughs> like if you really zoom out and look at it. You, wait, what? Say, you know, and 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 we live with this income tax as if it's the de facto way of things, but it, it hasn't, I mean, it hasn't always been that way.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know too much about economic history, but I would imagine every government in humankind has had to levy some kind of tax. Yeah,
0: sure, naturally, but the percentages we pay uh, in exchange for the, the services provided is creepy.
1: Well, half of it's going to the military. The yeah, point.
0: well, there you go. It's a strange thing. We right. are the We are the world police, aren't we? Uh, this is this has been a great conversation so far. We got so much so much time left to to talk, un, you know, unpack uh, further further things. Tell me a little bit about you know. Give me some examples of a few of your paintings. I'm going to go and look. Right, uh, this is a podcast though, so people can't. <laughs> no, they can't. <laughs> they can't see it right now. But tell them your website again. Maybe uh, uh...
1: Tom Block T O M B L O C K yeah com.
0: And are you still working on?
1: Uh... Currently, I I my visual art career is dormant. Aha. Uh-huh. I've got plenty of paintings. I, I think the world has enough of my paintings. Enough of <laughs> them in a storeroom that I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing any visual art right now. I'm concentrating on writing.
0: Can you give me an example of one of your well, pieces?
1: Yeah, I can give you a, a, a couple. So I work in series, and the series uh, they grow out of these ideas. So I did a series um, on. I did. A, I wrote a book on tracing the influence of Islamic mysticism on medieval Jewish thinkers. This is wow. an academic book.
0: Fascinating. Um, and do, you, do you? If I may, do you? You don't have a PhD in this or anything no. like that. You're just a, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I was very fortunate to get that published and it's an academic and, and for a couple of years it got published in Turkey as well. And I did book tours and I wow. talks in Egypt and everything. Brilliant. Um then they realized I was an artist and that, that ended. Um, <laughs> so as part of this, I, I discovered these medieval mystics, Jewish and Muslim who had either worked together or read each other's works or... Um, been influenced by. So I did a series of portraits. Uh, they're very expressionistic, but portraits of medieval mystics um, like Rumi or like the Baal Shem Tov or Abraham Abulafia, or Bayezid Bistami who were part of the story. And then I would exhibit those with a uh, one-page plaque explaining their role within this mm. connection. Cool. Um, another series, I'll just tell you about one more. And I do abstract and, and portraits, but I did a whole series called The Human Rights Painting Project. Where I paint, worked with Amnesty International, and I painted portraits of human rights defenders, um, of people that you probably haven't heard of, but that are willing, basically, my, the apex of human rights work is to say, my personal path is less important than the ideal i believe in sure and that when people do that so in, in a way i consider that applied mysticism applying right. it to society and i found that it wasn't pretty i mean these people in fact a friend of mine who i painted and who i've worked with is right now in jail in nigeria wow for his work uh Suare. um i mean at this moment um mm-hmm. so I did these portraits as a way to raise awareness of these people and to kind of ask this question where are you mm-hmm. which side are you on are you are you with this group and how much are you willing to risk I'm not willing to risk my life personally but it's a question I wanted to raise and then we did exhibits we would do workshops and talks uh, I gave half the sales money to Amnesty International I did shows all over the place maybe 40 or 50 okay. times so that was another way of bringing activism art Mystical ideas, society, all together.
0: Great, wow! When was that?
1: Uh, it started in 2002, and I kind of stopped showing them about three or four years ago. So it was about 15 years.
0: This is a question for me. Do you do you know about Thomas Kempis? Have you ever read him? The rings the bell. British yeah, mystic. Um, thinker, I think he was continental. or something. Yeah, but he was. He wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ, which is quite a rhapsodic. Um, you know, Christian mystic text might might interest you. Yeah, I think uh, I've heard the name. Yeah, yeah, really cool. It's been a it's been a few years since I've uh, since I've looked at that, but this conversation's reminded me of it. Uh, in your own life and and work, maybe in that order, how does the obsession or interest in maybe obsession's the wrong word? No, I'll the, take that. Yeah, obsession. You have with, to be obsessed with mysticism. Yeah, with mysticism. How does that? How does that play out in your in your day-to-day life?
1: It's interesting. It, it constantly causes me to question what I'm doing. But, I mean, I'll sit in a bar tonight and watch a game. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I'm right. not – I'm no mister. Sure. Amigo. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But it definitely <laughs> – if I'm sitting on the train and three people around me are annoying me, it makes me think, okay, I can do something aggressive or I can um, – channel a quieter and it's hard I think but it is something that's present for me but it's not I'm not off the rails I'm not going into the woods I'm not you know right? but I think um, I try to keep it present so within my day to day life it has some role in the way I interact with people
0: fundamentally being kind not acting out yeah sure I can relate to this I'm very interested in mysticism myself uh, being a little muted about it uh, because of you know trying to keep the interview on the rails <laughs> but I'm reading I'm reading uh, Crowley's book four right now uh, which is his kind of his textbook to his system, and I know that that he has a bit of a reputation as a as a wild child. Is it and, tarot guy? Yeah, Crowley was a tarot yeah, guy, yeah. and he was the wickedest man alive, and mistaken for a Satanist. Uh, he, he wasn't a Satanist. Uh, and one of the things he, he he was he created something like a syncretic system that was his own, and he starts with exactly what you were saying: this idea that uh, the mystic. He wouldn't say mystic. He'd say the, the master of the temple, basically the person who's conscious and aware that that the the world is a, is a temple because it's a reflection of deity or whatever, um, the universe. He says you, you sort of start with the idea that everything from your experience is a message from the divine.
1: Yeah. If I you mean, start
0: there, that's so interesting.
1: That's Sufis say um, you're, you're a uh, message from God to God. Yes. You know, and God sees through your eyes, God hears through your ears, that you are the, you know, the sensory apparatus of, of the deity, of, of the universe. Um, so I think that he probably had read some Sufism, and it definitely uh, resonates with me, that idea.
0: Yeah, and don't incriminate yourself here if you don't want to, but if you, what do you think, what role do you think uh, psychedelics play in any of this? Maybe we can just talk abstractly about it. <laughs> no, I, because
1: I'm, I'm, I just finished a draft of a novel called The God Pill. Okay where uh, psilocybin mushroom is discovered to be correctly titrated, a doorway to a more spiritually aware uh, society.
0: I mean, it is. It is but, as I it mean, is. But
1: I mean, titrated, not, you okay. know, let me take as much as I can and sure. go kick a door through. I mean, I think, and the, the Johns Hopkins just started a- They're uh, doing a, clinical trials. Yeah, and yep. they've started a whole, um, I think, a whole uh, organization there within Johns Hopkins that's looking at this. I think it's- Extremely important, and and as someone who uh, many years ago may or may not have tried such, a thing, <laughs> I can tell you that that if I had, it definitely opened my mind in ways that have never completely closed. For sure. Now, I, I I mean, I'm not advocating to go out and do that because you can have bad trips. You need it. It needs to be controlled. It needs to be titrated. Um, but I think that's one one option. I really do. I mean, not not consistently, but you know, um, they've done these studies that show that people are permanently changed. A lot of people with PTSD or cancer and things like this.
0: Alcoholism, it can treat that. Yeah, I mean, because it
1: gives you a very different perspective and a much more unified understanding.
0: Well, and I also think on a very practical level, if you're in the throes of a very serious addiction where you're you're drinking every day or you're, you're doing drugs every day or you're on kind of a cycle, uh, a 12-hour acid trip or, or mushroom trip is going to, you know, completely disrupt that. Uh, if you if you solely do that thing, it's going to be literally, I think, a physical um, kind of jerk, you know, jerking you through.
1: It is because neurobiological studies have shown that the the activity in the brain under psilocybin, at least, which is what what I've read about studies, mimics exactly the kind of disconnections that take place in in the realm of someone who meditates or prays all the time and is yeah. essentially practicing mystic. The same disintegration of the governing eye. And so your sense of being much more in tune with the whole universe. And and neurobiologically, uh, I think these studies have shown that it is similar.
0: Some of the greatest experiences I had back uh, when I was doing uh, mushrooms in university uh, were around the the come-ups. You know, when you were – not the come-ups. What's the phrase. When when I was coming down uh, and reintegrating the experience, even if it was a bad trip, uh, you would come back to – to earth and then have to reintegrate the experience. I would just say, and maybe I should have prefaced this conversation, but I would just say to anybody who's thinking about doing these things, definitely go in consciously and go in researched. And if you're going to do it, uh, you know, take responsibility for yourself and have a guide and make sure somebody's there. Shout out to uh, Peniel Collada, who does the art Forget This. You can find us at getthispodcast.com. And uh, Tom, do you know that everybody, every guest on this show, at least for the past couple of months, and this includes you, we're going to take that, that headshot that you gave us and, and Peniel has made kind of like a psychedelic touch up to it. I, you, so, <laughs> you informed me of that. I haven't seen it. Yeah. So, you know, I'll show it to you after the, after the episode. And that'll be on the website. If you go to again, getthispodcast.com, uh, you look for, for Tom's episode, you'll be able to see Panil's work. And, uh, we're on iTunes, Stitcher. Obviously, if you like the show, it'd be great to get five stars. We love that. Uh, Tom, we're not quite done yet. What do you, you know, staying on the, um, the tip, the the psychedelic tip. Have you have you heard about DMT or have you ever heard of any of this?
1: Like no, the, you know I'm not I'm not in a phase of my like life where I want to it. take anything. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I will just say that when I did this back in high school or maybe my first year in college, I kind of as I was coming down, I said, you know, the goal, my goal in life is to achieve this kind of mental awareness without this drug. Absolutely. Um, and I just to bring it back to the mysticism. Uh, there is in Sufism the idea of a drunken mystic, which is you are so, you so completely lose your ego that through prayer that you don't come back. You're like, you would be from the outside appear insane, but to them they have, they realize, but it's not the ideal state. Sure. And in Hasidic mysticism, Jewish Kabbalah, Kabbalistic mi- mysticism, there's all these teaching tales. And those tales were used after a prayer session to tell and to help people re enter this world. So it's ve- the, again the experience is, is almost exactly the same if you are one of these people that can pray to that level of commitment, and then you have to re-enter in the same way biologically you do automatically, you, hopefully with uh you know with acid or with uh, mushrooms or something.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, not all drugs are created equal. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> no, I mean I yeah. that,
1: that that phase for me is in the past. Sure, sure. Please. It is
0: interesting. We've there's such a politics around around drugs and what are the dominant drugs of an era and what drugs does a society permit tells you a lot about the society so you have written a novel about titrated psilocybin
1: I, I yeah it's not published it's gotcha. in a draft form okay. I just was I've been working on it this summer it, it definitely needs uh, work but I have that I have that novel cool a com- uh, complete yeah. Not- wow
0: you uh you do a lot. How do you how do you get through your day that you have uh, you have all the time to do this stuff? What's your routine look like for someone who, uh, maybe wants to be creative but doesn't know where to begin?
1: You know. It's funny because um, I've talked to friends who aren't creators, and they, they always talk about process, right? And I finally said to one of them. I said, you know, when two artists get together, we don't talk about process. We talk about ideas. Yeah, right. You know, we don't say, where do you write, and what's the temperature, and just a sun like this. And I said, people that are really working just do the work. And for me, it's like you would say, where do you write? I write when i don't not doing anything else. I mean, I can write in an airport. I can write at my dining room table i mean especially with a, a laptop i mean for me in my way of working i just um when i have an idea i just try to get something down and it can be on a train it can be anywhere i've written stuff on the subway you know I, whatever um in a notebook in a bar i mean it just uh, i don't for, i think everybody's different in terms of their creative and you know they have these um classes and they look at how to be creative and how do you create the special place and all whatever all that stuff is a room of your own i mean for me that does not like that at all i just um i just always have a need it's like all i know how to do and so that's what i do whenever i can do it and sometimes i get exhausted and i don't do it but i do produce an art festival okay here in town so anytime i'm not Creating all the energy for that, there's always administrative work to do there. So that can soak it up. Tell me about this art festival. Uh, It's called the International Human Rights Art Festival. Okay, And again, it's working with uh, activist artists under a very specific uh, mission statement, which is beauty, sincerity, vulnerability, and engagement. So we don't work with angry uh, art. We don't work with finger-pointing art. Mm. Um, And we produce monthly events around New York. And then I do a full week at the Wild Project. It'll be coming up December nine to 15 and i've already we just post our schedule and we're just starting to do pr for that and that'll be about 40 performances over a week and a couple hundred artists over the whole week yeah so
0: where do people find that
1: i h r a f dot o r g
0: i h r i f a
1: f i h r a f dot org it's the initials for international human rights art festival
0: great and where does that take place
1: um, well, our monthly events take place around town, usually in midtown in the theater, and the full week takes place at the Wild Project Theater in the East Village.
0: So, these are this is performance art.
1: It's almost entirely performance art. Though we've done workshops, we've done poetry workshops where people learn, think, and write. But mostly, it's performance. Yes. How long have times. you uh, been doing that? Um, we inaugurated December twenty, I mean March twenty seventeen at Dixon Place, also downtown. Yeah, West I know
0: State. Dixon Place. That's great.
1: Yeah, so we've been doing it for, well, I've been doing it for two and a half years now. Very cool.
0: And you said before the podcast, you've been in New York for five years? I've been here about five years. Five years.
1: Huh. So I was in uh, Washington, D.C. for 20 years before that. Yeah. Tell
0: me a little bit more about Washington, D.C. It, it, you made it sound like you split time. You're not a spook, are you?
1: No, I split time. <laughs> <I'm> spook, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. You're studied, my handler.
1: I studied Arabic for a few years, and I found that whenever I spoke one word of Arabic to an Arab, they were like, CIA. <laughs> so <laughs> that was you know but they were just like why else would you want to learn unless you want to come and kill me you know? oh no <laughs> so say that, something you know.
0: say something in Arabic for the podcast
1: uh, uh, haduth min all
0: right what did you say
1: I speak a little bit of Arabic but not a lot
0: all right cool yeah so you 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 where did you learn Arabic
1: um at a place called the Middle East Center down in Washington DC okay. when I was doing when I did this book on Jewish Muslim in a relationship I ended up in kind of a peacemaking role so Hmm. like uh there was a mosque in buffalo that was having problems because they were too insular and so they asked me to come out and inaugurate interfaith work and i went to cairo and i spoke at the first interfaith um conference at al Azhar university and um so i was going around doing all this stuff and i met a palestinian guy and he said man if you spoke arabic you'd be like golden in this world Hmm. and i studied for about four years and it is vast and difficult I can't even imagine. And I was just like, you know, I don't think I can learn this language. I mean, I speak French and Spanish, and I kind of I learned them, you know, kind of through living. Mm-hmm. You know, I lived in Spain for a few years. And you can't – in Arabic, you're not going to walk into a bar and meet someone and, you know – there's no bars in the area sure. world, so right, you right, can't like. Right. Like in Spain, all there is is bars. You know, Better bring so some honey. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> I was just down in Mexico City, and I've made a decision that at some point here, I, I intend to learn Spanish. I just don't quite know where to begin here I, in
1: New York I, City. Begin with a Spanish-speaking woman, and you will be fine. Kevin.
0: <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Good advice. Uh, I think they have apps for that. <laughs> I do live in Washington Heights, so. Uh, yeah. I don't, what excuse do I have? I speak some German and uh, I think I could learn it. I would just have to practice three, four, five days a week minimum. You have to really dig in. You if have you're to learning. live it. Yeah. yeah. You go
1: live in, this, in the culture and, you know, in a place where they don't speak much English and you would have to learn it and you'd have a rough year and then you'd. Speak it. But other than that, I think it's very difficult if you're not surrounded by Yeah,
0: it. you have to immerse in it. I right. had a great time in Mexico City. I was just down there for 12 days on kind of a work and pleasure trip, you know, wow. travel. It was just great. Have you, have you been down there?
1: No. You know, my image is that it's quite dangerous. That's what you read, but I don't know.
0: I that's It's overblown having been to Mexico City. You have to keep your head on a swivel like anywhere else, right? But we were just talking about the neighborhood here having yeah. problems in the Bronx and wherever else. Uh, so, yeah, especially speaking Spanish. You have a great time. Really cool. I think I might want to go down there at some point for like, I got a buddy who's into the UFC. Uh, We actually used to have a podcast together. Hey, Brad, what's up? Uh, He's going to be on. He's a a writer. We met in grad school. He just finished a novel too. I'm excited for him. Uh, But UFC would be really fun down there. I like the idea of going down for UFC and then also going down for like the luchador thing. Help go me see. out.
1: What UFC is? U, uh, the fighting, the, fighting, the, yeah. the,
0: the ring fighting. Do I you mean, fight I know it's. In ne- a cage? Ne- Kevin? No, I don't fight in a cage. <laughs> this is my cage. These podcasts are as, uh, as brutal as I get. That's fine. <laughs> um, but it would be a fun town to go see that. No, it's safe. It's safe. You just got to be smart about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's so much to see. The museums are incredible. The food is outrageous. You go and have food there, It's it is cleaner. You can get sick. Not at all. Wow! I felt better down there. It was it was kind of wild. I mean, obviously I'm on holiday, so I get the kind of the joy of that and relaxing. But uh, yeah, and you can Uber everywhere. I think before Uber might have been a little right. more touch and go, but now you just pop in the car and and uh, you, you know you get there and you just stay smart. It's like anywhere else. It's a very cosmopolitan, international city. Uh, and uh, I was down there for their their Independence Day for their Viva Mexico uh, moment, Viva Mexico, and that was really cool. They really know how to party. They got their priorities right down there—food, family.
1: I mean, most cultures do, other than us.
0: <laughs> it feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. It feels like we're going through. Maybe the way to think about it is, and maybe this is the show title we call this uh, stress test. I think that's what we're having in in America right now. Does anybody else agree? I, you know, we want. I want to open up the conversation for this podcast. And Tom, are you on Twitter?
1: I don't twit.
0: You don't tweet. tweet, no, don't tweet. Twit. Twit. No, you, I don't. You know, that. save yourself from the Dumb Bird website. Uh, if you're if you're on the Dumb Bird website, you can find me. Uh, it's at Kevin Kautzman. If you like the episode, let me know. Really, I'm curious what people think about this idea that America is going through this stress test because it certainly feels that way sometimes. Um, Tom, kind of winding down here. What's your What's your next thing in the theater? What do you hope to do next after Duck?
1: Well, I'm. Closes? Uh, Co as as you were you were as you know I co-founded the um, experimental theater writing workshop with uh, Suzanne Willett of Silver Glass Productions. Um, so I guess I'd love to expand that because we are offering a space for writers and actors as well to really explore non-traditional theater and and that's that's what I love to do. I mean, my theater uh, duck is is pretty accessible. There's a story. You get the story. It's about contemporary you know, society. But I'm definitely working on some pieces that are much farther out there. Um, and, you know, in terms of getting them produced, I don't foresee it. It's weird to be writing unproducible pieces. But we don't live at a time when experimental theater, maybe it was in the 60s or in Germany in the 30s and 20s. 40s sure. 20s, not sure. 30s. Um, but <laughs> yeah. 30s and maybe not so much. Yeah. But, um, you know, we don't live in a time where that's really valued. But, I mean, that's kind of – I want to just keep honing my voice. And I'm doing a lot of uh, short story writing. I would love to – I just started that. I would love to get some of those published. And, and short stories are nice because you don't need a team to put it out – to produce it. You know, you need – I mean, my God, Duck, we have 10 or 12 completely committed people. It's amazing, you know, with the yeah. designers and with the crew and right. stage manager and the director and the cast. I mean, it's such a big deal even at this
0: – The venue –
1: yeah, the venue. I'd rather, yeah, honestly, small-ish. You know, right? Sure. We're small off-off Broadway production, but it's still it's a huge uh, deal. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So just uh, that, and then the festival. Try to expand my festival, which is we have a publishing arm. We just started doing some music recording, um, and we're talking about some other ideas. Keep producing once a month. Do so you know.
0: I'm gonna get out to all this. I'm gonna go to the uh, to go see Duck, and uh, right. I will. I'll come out in December for the. Uh, festival uh, the active yeah. uh, what is it there it's
1: international again? human rights human art rights festival okay
0: all right i'll come out for some of that as well uh, and yeah of course we met through the experimental theater writing workshop which you've just inaugurated it's it's well we've new. been
1: running that uh, we do these things where where people come in and read this mm-hmm. is the first time we had a salon so oh, okay. kevin and i got together with some other people and talked about the philosophy of theater and where we are now and kind of where experimental theater fits into art movements today because in New York it's really neo realism is what's going on, or what's called neorealism, sure. right? I mean, here's a story, what's going on right now that my dad's going to see the Schenken thing. It's about LBJ, you know Sure, I sure. Mean? I met Schenken. Right. I mean yeah. that's kind of what's hitting right. getting successful. It's well, not it's not a my face. serious
0: time, isn't it? We need to everything needs to be in dialogue with the political right. angst in- that New Yorkers and liberals are, are feeling but everyone is feeling
1: in dialogue in a very easy to understand uh, clear way i mean i feel my pieces sure. are most definitely in dialogue but they use absurdism and humor and sure. surreal, surrealism and the, i feel they're in dialogue but not in the way that is you know happening in society which is we want it Right in between right down the middle. There's this there is
0: this idea of and and uh, to be entirely clear, none of this is um trying to pop anyone's balloon. I think what I'm arguing or and maybe and I don't mean to speak you know, I wouldn't um intend to speak for you, but uh there's room for both. Right? Everything doesn't need to follow fall right in that middle of lane of reportage and seriousness. And I I often feel like contemporary theater and new plays kind of always yeah, that's the trend right now. Is well, that's isn't what's it?
1: getting funded. Sure, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, again, off Broadway, you know, off off Broadway, you go downtown, you can find a lot of weird stuff around the edges.
0: But... <laughs> I'm all about the weird stuff around yeah, the edges. Exactly, but yeah. I mean,
1: you know, what's going to get that hundred thousand dollars and go to sure. signature or whatever yeah. is probably not. Yeah, uh, you know, the the next Bertolt Brecht or whatever. It's pretty
0: intense that uh, a review from the Times can still it still makes or breaks a production and a career
1: pretty wild yeah i mean i don't i guess the times reviews off of probably uh pieces not a lot and usually if they do they like aaron posner had a review with the wild project but he'd already been on broadway so they're going to go review his work
0: sure
1: i don't always agree with their i mean aesthetic by any stretch because they're mainstream and propping up this kind of mainstream ideal of neorealism or once and once in theater once a playwright is hit it once they can do no wrong (laughs) There and is you, that
0: feeling. sometimes. You, know, you go see
1: a play with their third play and you're like, I thought that was terrible. And then you read in the times, you know, a uh, tour de force.
0: <laughs> yeah. Some, some of it doesn't always make sense. I definitely, you know, support the arts. I support fellow playwrights as much as I can. Uh, and, uh, obviously want people to succeed and i want there to be a vital theater community in new york and uh is there a place where people can find the experimental uh, writers workshop online or is it better for them to no we
1: have a facebook page okay. i think right now it's uh if you've got a facebook and go to Ex- experimental theater okay. writers workshop you, okay. would, you would pop right up yeah we have that and great uh, we're just, again, we're just getting started, so yeah. you know it's not like there's all kinds of postings and articles and stuff. Sure, like sure. That,
0: right? I'm going to follow that as soon as we get done here, and uh, absolutely hope to develop a play in that context uh, in the spring. Yeah. And thanks so much for inviting me to the salon. Thanks for coming on to uh, the podcast. Oh, it was um,
1: great. Really enjoyed it.
0: Uh, all right, one more time. Your your pitch. I presume everything's on your website. Where can people find
1: you? Yeah. um Duck will be going from October 18 to November 3rd at the IRT Theater on Christopher Street. Uh, you can find information um, on my website at tomblock.com or at the IRT website. So you can uh, come on out, see the show, um, and leave amazed and, and oh have your mind blown. Who needs drugs when you've got absurdity? theater? Maybe maybe take some drugs before we get on the show.
0: <laughs> Just bring a sitter. Bring a sitter. Bring some DMT. I'll see you in the bathroom. Jesus. Uh,
1: Tom, <laughs> one of so those much. podcasts. Yeah, it's
0: gonna be one of those. Tom, thanks for coming on. Get this. It's get this. The podcast about things people love. I'm Kevin Couchman. You can find us at getthispodcast.com. iTunes, Stitcher. Give us five stars. Tom, will you come back on again? Absolutely, Kevin. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for for coming on. All right. Take care.